Over the last 25 years, the world has witnessed incredible progress, from dial-up modems to 5G connectivity, from massive PC towers to AI-enabled microchips. Innovators are rethinking possibilities every day. Through it all, Invesco's QQQ ETF has provided investors access to the world of innovation. Be a part of the next 25 years of new ideas by supporting the fund that gives you access to innovative companies. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Swisher and you're listening to Sway. Two words to describe Chelsea Handler right now, vaccinated and horny. Not my words, by the way. That's the name of the stand-up tour she just announced. And it's on brand for a comedian known for her progressive politics and her acerbic and often blue style. But in her latest HBO stand-up special, Evolution, Handler says she's changed. She says therapy was a breakthrough, one that, quote, deep itched her. Well, let's see if that's true. Chelsea Handler, welcome to Sway. Hi, Kara. How are you? Good. So I want to talk about this vaccinated and horny tour. Is that how you're feeling coming out of COVID? Yes. Horny falls under the umbrella of pent up frustration, which is something I've felt throughout this pandemic because it was very hard to casually date people during a global pandemic, obviously. And dating isn't really a top priority when people are dying all across the world. So now that we kind of have our go time and we are coming out the other side of it, I really want it to be a reason to bring people together. You just announced 40 dates across the U.S. starting this summer. How is the road going to be different? How do you expect audiences to be besides vaccinated and horny? We're not taking it for granted anymore. Being in a crowd with two or 3,000 other people is going to be a much different experience than it was before in the sense that we're grateful. You know, listen, every comedian is going on the road who can go on the road and has business on the road because we've all been sitting at home for so long. And, you know, our oxygen is attention and a microphone. Of course, nobody was on the road. Nobody did anything, really. They did a lot online. How did you cope with it as a comedian? Well, what I did first was I shot my HBO special, Evolution, which was the most personal thing I've ever done on stage. We did it last August in New Jersey. So it was really meaningful and important for me to tape this during the pandemic. So if it meant having 20 people in the audience, that's what it meant. We ended up having about 150. But we had to be really COVID safe, obviously, for the crew and for the people coming. So it was a lot of stress and and a lot of jumping through hoops, but it was well worth it. And then it felt good to be on stage and bring people out. Many of the people in the audience hadn't been out at all since COVID had started. This was a very intimate show, too. You talked about therapy. Well, it's an interesting loop because I went to therapy, you know, to de-bitch. I realized at a certain point, your behavior doesn't work for you or your lifestyle doesn't work for you. And I had just, I had been moving so fast, doing my TV shows and then doing stand-up tours and then writing books. I started to get very burnt out on all facets of my career. And I was just exhausted. And so I had to reevaluate and went into therapy. And, and, and going into therapy is awesome because you're paying somebody to tell you why you're fucked up. You're paying somebody for the transaction to point out your shortcomings and say, okay, you lack empathy. So the culture has changed during the pandemic too. It's more aware, more sensitive. There's more issues around cancel culture. At the same time, it's become more coarsened in a lot of ways how we speak to each other. So are you putting guardrails on your comedy when you go back out? 
I like some parameters. I like for some people to lay down some laws for me so that you can find the chaos within it and be creative about what you are exploiting and what you are making fun of. You know, what is the moment that we're living in? And we're having a social justice and racial justice movement. So there's tons to play with and tons to talk about. And we're all kind of saying goodbye to so many of the things that we're so accustomed to doing, having to say goodbye to words that you used to think were okay, having to say goodbye to phrases and ways to describe things that you think were okay, having to say goodbye to men for a while because they're on probation. And until they've proven to us that there are more good ones than bad ones, you know, there's one big group we're still able to make fun of, and that's white guys who don't seem to be getting the message of the movement that's happening. I'm single, so I deal with a lot of straight men who don't seem to understand that either get on the bus or you're going to miss it. You know what I mean? So if you had to pick one of these people who are fair game, who would it be? Or is it still Trump for you? No, I mean, Trump is out of our faces on a regular basis and off of Twitter. And I don't I don't want anyone to have to think about him or hear about him any more than we already have. Let's run through some of the white men you feel are fair game. Elon Musk, Andrew Cuomo, who you had a crush on, and since then things have happened, obviously. Jeff Bezos, is there anybody you feel like would be interesting to comedically treat in some fashion? Yeah, I mean, all those guys deserve to be made fun of because they're all assholes, you know what I mean? Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, for sure. Yeah, all of those guys. When you guys make that much money, we've got a big problem with capitalism in this country. So yeah, those guys are on the table to make fun of. You know, like, look at Bill Gates. We looked at Bill Gates and we're like, I thought Bill Gates was this great guy. I was like, look at him. He's the best millionaire. Warren Buffett, he's the best millionaire. And then you find out- Billionaire. Billionaire, Chelsea. Yeah, well, right, right, of course. And then you find out Bill Gates and then they get divorced and you're like, divorced? You're like, Bill Gates and Melinda Gates, he doesn't seem like that kind of guy. Like, he wouldn't be having an affair. He wouldn't be doing... And then you fucking find out, yeah, he could have been. Or he could have been at Jeffrey Epstein's. I mean, allegedly, possibly, who knows? But it's like, nobody It would be fucking Bill Gates in the real world. Nobody. Um, So what would you like to recorrect on Andrew Cuomo? In the show, Evolution, you have a crush on him. Because at the time, he was doing all the COVID things, which seemed very comforting. And then, of course, since then... Some reporting has been done about a wide range of problems that we've had with him. Yes, right. Well, I offered myself up to Andrew Cuomo um, leading in in the pandemic. I was very turned on by his morning news conferences, as many of us were. And he reached out to me and we had a couple conversations on the phone. Reached out? What do you mean? Like, hey? He he called me. Yeah, yeah. He called me and we talked on the phone. And, uh, you know, he was really feeling himself. Not literally. Go ahead. No, no. Who knows what he was doing? He could have literally been feeling himself. I'm not sure. We weren't FaceTiming, so I can't tell if he was pulling a Jeffrey Tubin. I doubt it, though. (laughs) I was on the East Coast filming my special. I thought we would have a drink or something along those lines. And uh, he blew me off. And then I found out all the stuff we found out about him subsequently. And I thought, well, I guess this is a guy that doesn't like it offered up. So uh, my crush with him is, yes, O-V-E-R. Okay, I'm assuming so. I was like, oh, no, no, no. Can you imagine if I still had a crush on him? I was like, yeah, he seems like a great, solid guy. (laughs) Um, As a single woman who has remained childless and alone, which, by the way, I've never felt more confident about my decision-making skills than during this pandemic. Because? Because one word that will never come out of my mouth is homeschool. And 
I don't want to toot my own horn, but beep, beep, because I did not have to deal <laughs> with that. I have children, so please. I can't imagine. It's a lot. Let me just say it was a lot. It was a lot. So you yourself, though, how do you reflect on things you've said in the past? Because you've said some racially offensive things in the past. You tweeted a joke at the Oscars about how Angelina Jolie was filing adoption paperwork for Lupita Nyong'o. You've done a bunch about Angelina Jolie and things like that. So how do you look at certain jokes that you used to tell? Would you not tell them now? Do you think it's impossible for a comic to do stuff like that anymore? No, I mean, listen, there's an evolution with everybody. And the problem with a lot of these men that have been canceled is they're not sincerely apologizing. You know, my therapy, my whole thing has been on public record. You know, I'm not pretending or faking or saying, oh, oh, I'm sorry after the fact. I actually have had an evolution. I have, I do want to be kinder and gentler. I want my jokes to not be reflective of a time in my life that I wasn't aware of how they impact people. You know, your words are powerful, especially someone like me who has a very big mouth. People that do do that, you know, you can forgive them. You do understand that Chrissy Teigen's situation, she admitted her bad behavior. She said, I'm really sorry. And that's what we should all be doing when confronted with anything we've done is say, I'm sorry. Thank you for letting me know. I'm going to do better. Period. End of story. It's interesting because you once said you never apologize publicly for a joke, and you've obviously changed your opinion. In fact, in your latest special evolution, you told a story about apologizing to a Black performer who you smacked on the butt, and you apologized after posting a clip of Louis Farrakhan after your critics pointed out his history of anti-Semitism. Well, no. I mean, again, I apologize because I needed to apologize. I saw one message in that video and I thought, oh, this message is so powerful without taking into consideration the context of Louis Farrakhan and everything that he did and all of his anti-Semitism. So clearly I misstepped. And yeah, I do apologize now because that saying I don't ever apologize is my old self, being an asshole. You know, that's stupid too. Can comedy stay as sharp if people are doing that? I know a lot of comics that if they can't go to the very edge, if they can't be outrageous, that's a problem. I don't think so. I don't think that's a problem. I don't think your outrageousness has to come from something that's going to get you in trouble. You can be outrageous within the confines of not offending other people. You know, the thing about being a comedian is you have a very strong point of view. And that's why people come to see you. So that's where the good stuff is going to happen. But when you think about this idea, does it change comedy? No, I don't think complaining as a comedian about not being able to say stuff is a responsible way to move forward. You have to think about more clever ways to say the things that you want to say. Who wouldn't be up for a challenge like that? Right. So I'm going to talk about some other comedians that have had to deal with this. For example, should Roseanne Barr have been, I guess, canceled, I guess, if that's the way, but I think she sort of was, after she tweeted a racist joke citing Planet of the Apes meme when discussing Valerie Jarrett, who is Black and a former advisor to Obama. How did you look at that? Yeah, that was pretty despicable. I mean, there's really no room for that kind of racism at all, like from an entertainer, no less. So that was bad. You know, that was icky. What about someone like Kevin Hart? You defended him after he was criticizing for homophobic remarks. He did apologize, as I recall. Well, yeah, Kevin did apologize. And yeah, and I love Kevin because he he understands, you know, why that was homophobic. And I think I've spoken to him about this very topic. And yeah, and he kind of came, you know, that's all you have to do is come to the table and go, shit, I'm an idiot. I wasn't thinking this through. I mean, obviously, it's not all you have to do. You have to mean it. Right. 
Right, absolutely. So now Ellen DeGeneres faced accusations of a toxic work environment, mostly by her producers. She's ending her talk show now. How did you look at that? Well, I mean, I can only speak from my own experience. I've done talk shows for a total of like 10 years. It's always a better, healthy work environment when the boss is in the room all the time and has the door open all the time. So, I mean, actually, I just guest hosted a couple of episodes, but I don't work with Ellen. You know, I don't work on set with her. So, I don't know. I mean, I guess her ending the show does feel like the end of a certain type of error, you know? Error. I said error. Error. Uh, Possibly error. Yeah, yeah. We'll go over our words later. Yeah. In May, you said you were interested in hosting a talk show again. Would you want to do that? I don't know if replace Ellen is really the thing. I mean, I'm not actively pursuing doing another talk show, but I'm smart enough now to be open-minded and not shut the door on things because I end up, eating my words. So there's a chance I may end up hosting a talk show and I don't even know about it yet. So (laughs) I'm keeping that open. So what do you think the modern talk show is? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, Yeah, I think now it's just a very transactional, you know, thing like you need to go on to promote. They need you on blah, blah, blah. But our celebrities now, there was such a mystique because of there wasn't social media, right? There was intrigue. Yeah, now they never shut up. Yeah, now you know everything about everyone. So I don't know that interviewing celebrities is the most fascinating thing. On Dear Chelsea, my podcast that I just launched, I, t- I have read- It's an advice podcast, correct? Yeah, I have an advice podcast, which is a joke, but I love to give out advice and I have very strong will. And I got to tell you, talking to real people, I love. I love learning from somebody. So I don't know if a modern day talk show is about celebrities. I think that's why podcasts are so popular because they're not just straight up celebrity interviews. Right. Speaking of celebrities, we've seen pushback, for example, around Britney Spears. She's given this testimony about her conservatorship. You, for many years, have said she should be joked about. How do you look at joking about Britney Spears now? Oh, God. Are you kidding? Britney Spears, this is heartbreaking with her father and this. I mean, if there's ever been a definition of white male patriarchy, patriarchy, that a judge puts her in the custody of her father, like no man should ever be in charge of any woman. I mean, I know there is a woman co-conservator now, but that's a new addition. It's sick. It's sickening. There's nothing funny about it to me. You know, you can't make fun of Britney Spears. She's like lost control of her. her, her she has no liberty. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Jesus and Mero, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Chelsea Handler after the break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, You're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, fueled roads, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. 
I'm listening for drones, jets, check in with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. So are you beyond what you talked about, which was Trump derangement syndrome, essentially? You would run into the airport lounge, which I thought was hysterical, and yell at the Fox News watchers. I do that to my mom still today to this moment. How did you get rid of that, though? Because I think it still exists for a lot of people. Oh, yeah. I mean, we have post-traumatic Trump disorder, PTTD now. So it still exists, but it was a great setting off point, I think, for a lot of people. Because for one thing, yes, it was miserable. And, you know, obviously, if we could take it back, I would do anything in a second not to have had that history in our in this country. But, you know, it all is necessary for us to recognize, you know, with Trump, I had something to be angry about. I had something to hang my anger on. So all of my bitchiness and my anger and everything could be directed at something. I was like, him, that's what I hate about this world. You know, whereas that's not really who I was mad at. I had a lot of stuff underneath that. Right. You talked about an evolution. You talked about the devastating death of your brother. Oh, yeah. I was mad at, at my brother for dying. I was mad at my father for his reaction to my brother's death. So I have an issue with trusting men and believing them and not thinking that they're going to abandon me. Even though on an intellectual level, I understand that death isn't an abandonment. As a nine-year-old little girl, you don't really have that delineation. You don't understand the nuance. You just think you've been rejected again or mm -hmm. lied to. Yeah. Right. Now, one of the things that I thought was more devastating was your father's reaction when you were swimming. I thought that was even worse in a lot of ways to turn around and turn yeah. his back on you at a moment when you needed help, when you needed obvious help. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was the center of my whole family's universe in my mind before my brother died. And then you, my brother died shockingly hiking in Wyoming on a hiking trip. He just slipped and fell. And you watch everyone in your family kind of retreat to their own corners of grief because at that time, my family wasn't going to go to a therapist. My parents weren't down with that. So everyone just kind of repaired themselves. You know, my mom and dad handled it completely differently. And my mom was aware that there could be joy while you're grieving, that there could be pain and happiness at the same time. And my father couldn't. He was like, no, 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 I'm going to be miserable for the rest of my life until I find somebody to blame for my son's death. Um, uh, three things that help you personally, therapy, meditation, and weed. So tell me about how weed has changed your life. Well, weed was the gateway for my meditation. Weed was the gateway drug to get me to sit down and shut up. Like, I would try to meditate with my therapist. I would sit there and he would just say things that made my vagina clench shut. I was like, ugh. He would be like, and I, I couldn't do it. I just couldn't achieve the thing that everyone talked about. But I feel like the introduction of cannabis and the kind of like diminution of alcohol it's just made me calmer and easier. Like, I'm just more mellow. Like, I don't give a shit. I don't want to yell at somebody or get into a fight with somebody in traffic. I don't have the energy for that ever. So it did help me meditate. Gateway. I meditated this- Gateway to meditation. Yeah, it was a gateway drug. So what is the regimen? Is it like a morning joint instead of morning coffee or what? Uh, sometimes. Sometimes I'll take a little hit of weed in the morning. Sometimes I won't. I don't really drink coffee because I have way too much energy as it is. But I get up. I definitely meditate every morning. 
morning. That's before I have a joint. And then sometimes, you know, I just kind of have it throughout the day. Like I'll take an edible or I'll smoke a little weed just to kind of mellow me out. Or if I'm going to be with friends and I want to be giggly, then there's a different kind of weed I smoke for that, you know, or I take some chocolate mushroom. I love mushroom chocolate microdosing. That puts a pep in your step too. So I kind of just use all the things that help me be softer, you know, because I don't need any more edge. That's already there. So I just want tools that help me kind of be sweet and kind and nice to people. What did you take before this interview? (laughs) Oh, I had a hit of my little one hitter uh, outside before, like a half hour before this. I first I had to get my eyelashes installed this morning. Okay, that's no, not a dosis. (laughs) (laughs) No, dosis is a vape pen. So I don't smoke vape pens. I don't know. I don't. I just. I don't do any. Drugs. I don't. You I've should. Never done it my whole- you should. Well, that's why you're so sharp, Kara. No, I just never have since my whole life. My whole life. It was a joke in high school. It was. I never take. I've never seen cocaine, and people thought I had a cocaine addiction. Just they I'm did. So, yeah, I went back to college. They're like, you took a lot of cocaine in college. I'm like, I've never seen it except in the pages of Time magazine. I've never actually physically seen cocaine. So, oh wow! Whatever. Look at you. I know, never. Mm. I don't drink either. Really. Well, alcohol is poison anyway, so you're good on skipping that. But yeah, I would just prescribe you with a light edible for like times where you just really want to relax or take a load off when it's like after, you know, eight o'clock at night and you just really want to chill out. Yeah, yeah. That's what I would prescribe to you. But I know that you're not going to take it. So you wrote an op-ed for Time Magazine in April about marijuana decriminalization and how cannabis laws disproportionately punish people of color. Why is this something you're politically passionate about? This is a perfect example of the system uh, of how it displaces so many people of color. I had personal experience with this growing up. I had a black boyfriend and we got caught like three times in high school with a dime bag and he was arrested and I was let go. They said, go back to wherever your neighborhood is. You know, and at the time I was 15 or 16 and I didn't give it much thought. But as I got older and started to understand how this country was built and all the systems that we have in place that are built by, you know, white men deciding what's best for everybody, you start to get a little bit more zealous about how you're going to contribute to to something, especially if I'm planning on making a profit off of something, which is, you know, cannabis. I am launching a cannabis brand at some point. It hasn't happened yet, but it's still in the works. And we've had a bunch of hiccups because of COVID and stuff. So I am, but I won't do anything like that without having proceeds go to one of these decarceration funds that are out there that help people actually A, get the legal money to argue their case and get these people released from prison who are spending 10 to 20 year sentences for carrying marijuana, something that white men get away with all the time, something that I got sent home for when I was 16. What is your brand going to be called? Yeah, I can't reveal the name, but it's for women. I want women to be emboldened and empowered the way that men are emboldened and empowered to use cannabis. It's a medicine and it helps so many people in this world with anxiety, with sleep, and I want to help destigmatize that. All right. Speaking of business, I want to get your take on what's happening in the streaming wars. So you have a unique point of view here because you were with Netflix for two seasons for your show, Chelsea. You're one of the early people doing that. And you did a Netflix documentary in 2019. Last year, you brought your stand-up special to HBO Max. I'd love to understand what's happening here for talent in dealing with all these companies like Amazon, Hulu, Apple TV. What's it like now to be talent with all these competing platforms? I mean, it's great. You know, there's a lot of places to go and there's a lot of really exciting platforms that are opening. And I think the important thing as a piece of talent is to diversify, right? 
I was at a deal for Netflix. I did, you know, a documentary series with them. Then I did the Hello Privilege and my shows and a stand-up special. So it's natural to want to kind of spread that around. But it is an exciting time because the landscape is changing so drastically, so fast. And they're all so competitive with each other. So, you know, it's a good time to have a good piece of IP and to be pitching something that you know is a home run. Did you not want to stay with Netflix? Netflix has been signing up a lot of talent, obviously, from Shonda Rhimes to Ryan Murphy to others. Was was there a reason, like, how you move along or that you didn't put Evolution on Netflix, for example? I had a deal at Netflix. So when that ended, that just ended. That was always the way it was set up. We didn't talk about extending it further. And when I did do my stand-up special, Netflix was invited to come see it. I think I just ended up at HBO Max. I think Netflix did make an offer, but we ended up at HBO Max because I guess, I don't know, it was probably a better offer. Yeah. So when do you, when you think about them all, Amazon, Hulu, Apple TV, now Disney, Warner with HBO Max, and then there's Paramount too, there's Peacock. Do you stack rank them in any way? Well, you think about it in a marketing standpoint, right? And I think that was one of the things with HBO Max was they knew this was an important special for me, that this was a departure for me. So it was important for me to be somewhere new to kind of match the creative on it. But also they have a slate that allows them to promote things for long periods of time instead of just like, out and about. So I think that's something you take into consideration when you're going to any of these services. How are they going to promote your project? Because you can't just put something out and only use your social media to promote it. I mean, you can try, but it doesn't always work that way. Because the Netflix carousel is pretty full. Like, and But things do pop out, of course. When you're thinking about how to market yourself and to be part of this system, is there too much content out there? And, and secondly, I was on a panel yesterday at Banff talking about how people get paid. Everything has changed in terms of how people get paid, getting paid up front versus residuals versus this and that. Is that a particularly confusing time for talent and producers? To be honest, the money aspect of it is not my forte because I'm a creative. So I let my agents and managers explain that to me in the most diluted possible way. All of these different places have different things to offer. So it's like, what are they going to say to you that's going to marry the deal for you to stay there? Having a stand-up special being promoted by HBO Max was very alluring to me because Netflix has so many stand-up specials that it was like, okay, well, what are they going to do for you, you know? So there's a definite like promotional aspect that is important for us all to pay attention to. So tech companies obviously are get, trying to get in this race of content. Do you see social media as a content distribution platform or is it just a testing ground, an advertising platform for you? It can be a content distribution platform. I think a lot of people are using it in that way, but I think it's a blending of the two for sure. You're on TikTok and Twitter. I am. I'm on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, all of it. And you well, know, how do you look at each of them? Differently. Instagram is definitely, you know, your life, your lifestyle, your business. I launched my tour there. TikTok is more of a soundbite, kind of like your comments on something or your reaction to something or videos. You know, it's not pictures. They're not pretty necessarily. It's just kind of like in the moment. And Twitter is for politics for me. You know, that's where I read my news and that's where I comment on the asinine shit that Republicans are trying to pull off when I have the energy to do so. Yeah, yeah. But now you don't because you're in a better position and you're on weed. Yeah, I don't go off as much. <laughs> so technology has been disrupting comedy in a lot of ways. There's more discovery and things like that. But who do you look at as the gatekeepers now? If you were just starting right now, how would you look at the scene as an up-and-coming comic? As a comic? Oh, God, who are the gatekeepers? Uh, 
You know, it's I not don't like late night TV used to be or comedy clubs or this and that. Yeah, it doesn't feel like that's the scene anymore. First of all, you can't get away with people being gatekeepers in that way right now. That's not the tone of what's happening. When I was coming up, you know, people would yell at you like, you can't perform here or or give you bad feedback. Like, you're too pretty to be a comedian. You should get your breasts reduced. That'll make people take you more seriously. Stupid shit like that you can't say. What? Yeah, I once had a woman tell me I should get a breast reduction if I wanted to do stand-up. I was like, what? So there are no gatekeepers anymore. And I just announced this tour and I went straight to my agents and said, find me a bunch of undiscovered people to have open for me. I want to be bridging the gap and giving, you know, newcomers a new experience. And I feel like that's what we're all doing. Hire people of color whenever you can. Have a person of color open for you. Do everything you can to be sharing. Always women. Yeah, always with me. I had a guy on a plane the other day asked if he could open for me. And I wanted to be like, sir... I don't have men open for me, okay? I'm a woman supporting women, not men. But I did it. I kept that to myself because I've been to therapy, Kara, and I was able to shut my mouth. What would the old Chelsea say? I'd been like, (laughs) hey, asshole, I'm not having your fucking dumb ass open for me when I could have a fucking woman of color open for me. (laughs) Oh, I like seeing old Chelsea a little bit, a little bit. I still like old Chelsea too, just so you know. Um, Don't worry, old Chelsea's still here. Don't worry, Kara. Sometimes I just have to be a little bit more serious. Otherwise, people won't take me seriously at all. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. So you're talking sort of a very different comedy universe. Where is it going next? It's a big question, but if you had to say, what's going to be really funny going forward? What do you imagine it's going to be? I think we're going to get into a real silliness. Like, I think it's going to be silly funny. Where It's not about cutting and hurting and, and, and sharp edges right now. It's about letting loose. Like, there's a release, a global release and relief coming. And I want to play into that. So I think the sharp and the biting and all of that is going to take a time out. It'll be back, obviously, you know, but this is a time for joy and celebration. So I'm focusing on that and being like positive vibe and also telling men to get their fucking shit together before this is over. You know, I had a guy ask me the other day, well, can we still open the door for you? I was like, you know what? It's questions like that. Yes. Yes. You guys have been raping us since the beginning of time. So the least you could fucking do is open the door. That's the least you could do. And don't ask questions that are that defensive when we're telling you that we've been treated unfairly forever. Your answer can't be like, well, can we open the door for you? I mean, that's the kind of shit I'm dealing with. (laughs) Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naeem Araza, Blakeney Schick, Hiba El Arbani, Matt Kwong, and Daphne Chen. Edited by Naima Raza and Paula Schumann. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Eric Gomez and Carol Sabulo. Fact checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lynn, and Liriel Higa. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts, so follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, Along with your morning edible and a Zoom with Jeffrey Tubin, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. Today, I want to talk about the hellscape that is technical diagramming, right? Everybody's nodding their heads right now. Uh huh. And there is a potential solution that I want to share. There was one name that several people brought up. 
I did some digging, and it's kind of nuts how much this program Miro has for developers. I have to share this. It could potentially be a game changer for you. So my favorite part about Miro is that half the work is already done. Like right now, typically we spend hours starting diagrams from scratch, right? Gathering information, you get buy-in from every team. Uh, You know, following up, that's a lot of work to do. But Miro has a full set of integrations with the tools you're probably already using. And they also offer open APIs and SDKs for custom solutions for all those niche diagramming use cases we have to do, right? So the end result is the same, but it doesn't take forever. It's a massive, massive time saver. I'm transforming basic flowcharts and network architectures, and it all lives in one place. So are you using Miro? Have you used it? I want to hear 